Nuclear annihilation. I mean, really. How many bombs do we need? How many times over do we need to be able to nuke the world in order to engender a false sense of security here in this country? The bombs that decimated Hiroshima and Nagasaki were mere pipsqueaks compared to the power of modern nuclear weapons. But that doesn't stop this country from its addiction to manufacturing more, more, and more weapons of mass destruction. And how many nuclear weapons do we already have? It takes a genuine expert, someone who keeps a close eye on Los Alamos Nuclear uh, National Laboratory in New Mexico, to keep up with the count. And he tells you... In the stockpile, we have, depending on how you count it, about 1,900 deployed nuclear weapons and about the same number in reserve that could be loaded onto delivery vehicles. But then there's another let's say round number 2,000, which are not being maintained, those are in a dismantlement queue. No one's in a rush to take them apart, but they're not necessarily being perfectly maintained. So all told, we have almost 6,000 nuclear weapons with pits in them. Then there's the extra pits which are a varying utility, let's say, for modern warhead designs. Well, if that's not the pits, I don't know what is. And when Greg Mello of the Los Alamos Study Group reveals just how many weapons exist and why we do not need more plutonium pits to make even more nuclear weapons, you get that sinking feeling common to those of us who recognize that we are stuck in that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we look at the U.S. drive to build two, count them, two factories to build more plutonium pits so we can build more nuclear weapons, and why we definitely don't need them. We talk with Greg Mello, executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group, who brings more than 30 years' experience following nukes to our discussion. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than was stuck in the mud at Burning Man. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 5th, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in the U.S., where the Biden administration will, for the first time, send controversial depleted uranium armor-piercing munitions to Ukraine. This according to Reuters. The shells, which will come from U.S. excess 
inventory. That's right, we have so many here. We've got the markdown and on sale. Excess inventory is funded by the Presidential Drawdown Authority, which lets the president make transfers from U.S. stocks without Congress's approval. If the U.S. deploys depleted uranium shells to Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin has threatened to retaliate with DU rounds of his own. DU weapons spread nuclear waste that is sourced from spent fuel at nuclear reactors and is linked to birth defects, miscarriages, and cancer. As Common Dreams reports, the U.S.-led NATO coalition that waged the 1999 air war against Yugoslavia also used DU munitions which experts believe are responsible for a surge in leukemia in the region, both among the local population and foreign troops deployed in the war zone. We spoke about DU on nuclear hot seat number 625 with Demacio Lopez, who is a scholar on this issue. We will link to that episode on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 637. In Florida... When nobody was paying much attention, the storm surge from Hurricane Idalia hit the nuclear power plant Crystal River, just to the north of Tampa. While the facility is still being decommissioned, the highly radioactive spent nuclear fuel will remain on site until 2037 at minimum. For now, Crystal River seems to abduct that particular nuclear bullet. And we will have a link up to an article, The Deep Roots of the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Fight, and why it continues to this day. Over to Japan, where the big stories continue to be water and fish, specifically the radioactive tritium-contaminated water that is being released from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean. In the wake of China's ban on imports of any and all seafood products from Japan, the Kishida government announced the introduction of new measures to support the fishing industry. Last week, a fund of 30 billion yen, the equivalent of over 203 million U.S. dollars, was funded to counter reputational damage, that's what they're calling it, reputational damage to Japanese seafood. Another 50 billion yen, or 338 million plus change, had been earmarked to support the fishing industry itself. Japan and China are getting into it over the water release, damaging the chances of a much-awaited detente or easing of tension between the two countries. Last week, China's foreign ministry denounced Japan's release of, quote, nuclear-contaminated water, and thousands of callers from China's country code bombarded municipal offices in Tokyo with what have been labeled harassing phone calls, with messages such as yelling, You idiot! Or, Why do you release contaminated water? Prime Minister Kishida summoned China's ambassador and, quote, strongly urged him to call on Chinese people to act calmly and responsibly. Some might argue that arguing with and harassing Japan over this release of radioactive wastewater is the only action left open to the people. Meanwhile, the propaganda PR push continues as Prime Minister Kishida and his ministers sat down to a Fukushima sushi lunch. And U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, ate flounder and seabass sashimi with Soma Mayor Tachiya. He also visited a grocery store where he sampled fruits, bought peaches, figs, grapes, flounder, sea bass, and other produce from Fukushima Prefecture, claiming that all of his purchases will be served when his children visit him this weekend. Emmanuel said, we are going to all eat it. As a father, if I thought there is a problem, I won't serve it. 
Well, the effects of this water release are not going to show up immediately in fish that are already grown, with no word from where they were harvested, and plants that have been growing through an entire season. As for the consequences, only time will tell. Meanwhile, Beverly Finlay Kaneko, who is my co-producer on Voices from Japan every year and has returned to once again live in that country, noticed that since the contaminated water issue has become top news, fish that were broadly labeled product of Northeast Japan are now labeled more specifically. For example, the salmon that we had tonight was labeled product of Aomori, which is in the far north of Japan's island of Honshu, about 270 miles from Fukushima. The fisheries in the greater geographic area don't want to be tainted by being classified in the same basket as Fukushima. To which I add, because everybody knows when it comes to water and fish, Fukushima's got nuclear cooties. The one inadvertently honest member of Japan's government was fisheries minister Tetsuro Nomura, who, when speaking with reporters after a meeting with the prime minister, said that it involved, quote, the evaluation of the contaminated water after its release into the Pacific. Kishida immediately pounced, demanding that he call this Alps-treated water, a reference to the treatment process that does not remove tritium. And while Japan's fisheries agency said tests of fish from near the plant on Saturday found no detectable levels of tritium, of course it won't! It's too soon! I'm going to have to do a show just on stupid nuke tricks. In Russia, a pro-Putin pundit has admitted that the war is lost for Russia unless Moscow uses a nuclear weapon. Russian hardliner Vladimir Solvyov slammed Russian officials, saying, If we are going to wage war, we should wage war, before claiming that a small Ukrainian breakthrough in the city of Robotyne was, quote, the perfect case for a tactical nuclear strike. In France, French power company EDF has extended the outage at its Golfesh 2 nuclear reactor because river water used to cool the reactor had surpassed maximum temperatures due to excessively hot weather and couldn't do the cooling. In Germany, Chancellor Olaf Scholz stated that the era of nuclear energy is over for that country and will never be used again. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. In an attempt to recreate the Greta Thunberg wheel, a media story on TheGuardian.com has been picked up around Europe, citing an all-knowing, all-powerful 18-year-old climate activist who is calling on Greenpeace to drop its, quote, old-fashioned and unscientific, end quote, campaign against nuclear power in the EU. In April, Greenpeace announced it would appeal against the EU Commission's decision to include nuclear power in its classification system for sustainable finance. But 18-year-old Ia Anstut from Sweden, whose only stated credential is that she took part for three years in the Friday school strikes movement started by Greta Thunberg, issued a statement with multiple misconceptions beloved by the nuclear industry embedded in her words. She referred to nuclear power as clean energy, which is hard to swallow when it creates high-level radioactive waste that's dangerous for 240,000 years, carbon-free, which it is only at the actual instant when the atom is split, but if you look at the entire fuel chain to get to that point and what follows it, there's plenty of carbon everywhere. And she calls it a large and useful tool against climate change. 
No, darling. The only tool we're talking about here is you and the nukesters who use young and naive activists who are desperate to make a difference to parrot their talking points and do their job of gumming up the anti-nuclear works for them. It would be interesting to find out who this young woman is, what her background is, what her training is, and where the money is coming from for her campaign. But whether we get that information or not, you, Ia Anstut, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Now here's this week's featured interview. The United States is in a mad rush to build not one but two new facilities to manufacture plutonium pits, the trigger necessary to detonate every nuclear weapon. Pits equals bombs. But at what cost? Do we not have enough weapons already to blow the Earth into an asteroid belt? And what's the story behind this big push to build a plutonium pit factory at Oppenheimer's cul-de-sac, Los Alamos? Today's guests will fill us in on all that and more. Greg Mello is one of the founders and executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group, based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. By education, he is an engineer and regional planner, and he has led this Los Alamos watchdog group since its founding in 1989. The group has worked for nuclear disarmament, environmental protection, social justice, and economic sustainability, with actions including policy research, environmental analysis, congressional education and lobbying, community organizing, and litigation. Greg brings more than 30 years of up-close perspective on Los Alamos to our conversation, and we spoke on August 25th, 2023. Greg Mello. It is so great to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much, Libby. It's wonderful to be here. Let's start out with the basics. What is a plutonium pit and what is it used for? A plutonium pit is the explosive core of a nuclear weapon. There's more than one stage in a modern nuclear weapon explosion. So the first stage is an atomic bomb. A pit is the part of the atomic bomb that goes boom. So it's made of plutonium and it's imploded with high explosives. It's a relatively simple object, but it's very precise and it's very difficult to make them. Where have they been produced in the past in the United States? Well, it started at Los Alamos during World War II. And they made solid pits with all plutonium all the way through almost to the very middle. And... Then they transferred this to the Hanford site in Washington State in 1949. Put it on a more of an industrial basis because Los Alamos wasn't doing a good job, really, and the facilities were kind of crappy. So then it was at Hanford. And then in 1952, I think it was, they started producing pits also at a new plant near Boulder, Colorado called Rocky Flats Plant. And eventually all the work was transferred over to the Rocky Flats plant, which made all the pits until June or July of 1989, when it was shut down for a combination of environmental and safety problems. And were pits manufactured in the United States after that point? Oh, yes. 30 or 31, depending on how you count them, 
pits made at Los Alamos starting in 2007 and ending in 2012. The most they made in one year was 11. And here we have to distinguish between practice pits or pits which are made like you'd make in your high school shop class to get your techniques down. And then the ones which you would make for the client. If you become a professional furniture maker or something you make, it's a nice piece of work. You do your masterpiece for them. But uh, they call those, by the way, certified pits or war reserve. So that's a little stamp of quality. What precious names to give such an horrific object. It's odd. It's weird. So with all these pits being produced, how many nuclear weapons does the U.S. have in its stockpile? And do we have stockpiled plutonium pits that are not yet in weapons? Yes, to both. They've been in weapons, the ones we have. We don't have any that are made new that have yet to be put into weapons. They've come out of weapons, and the ones which might conceivably be used in some way in the future are kept in a strategic reserve and then there's a whole bunch of other ones that are basically scrap, very dangerous scrap. So those are kept for disposal in future. But in the stockpile, we have, depending on how you count it, about 1,900 deployed nuclear weapons and about the same number in reserve that could be loaded onto delivery vehicles. But then there's another between 1,500 and 2,000, let's say round number 2,000, which are not being maintained, those are in a dismantlement queue. No one's in a rush to take them apart, but they're not necessarily being perfectly maintained. So all told, we have almost 6,000 nuclear weapons with pits in them. Then there's the extra pits which are a varying utility, let's say, for modern warhead designs. In terms of the size of the explosion, the pit is the trigger for the larger bomb. For the bombs we have in our arsenal now, how big are they compared to Hiroshima and Nagasaki in terms of the power that they release? The largest one is about 80 times the size of Hiroshima. The typical one is about a third of that. And then they go down to three times that, let's say, and then all the way down to a third of Hiroshima, let's say, or possibly even less. You see, the yields are variable on some of these weapons so that they can be dialed. So they can decide, well, let's just do a little bit of annihilation to this country over here, but do a whole bunch more annihilation somewhere else. And that's set at the point of releasing it or the detonation. Yes, it's set at different points in time, usually before it's loaded. So we've got all of these nuclear weapons, a whole bunch. We've got the power to annihilate the Earth multiple times over. Would that be accurate? Yes, it would be. Our modern societies are very fragile. And it doesn't take much to knock out everything that our lives depend on. I think that this is one of the biggest misconceptions in the nuclear field. 
that it takes hundreds of nuclear weapons to knock out a big country. I don't think it does. I think it takes only a few because you can't quickly replace the fossil fuel infrastructure in Houston. You can't quickly replace the giant transformers that function as critical nodes in our electric grid. And a single nuclear explosion above the earth can create an electromagnetic pulse that fries those giant transformers. It may take a year or two to get one, assuming they are, are actually available, but then everybody's dead by then. You can't pump water, you can't pump gasoline, you can't function, grow food. Our societies are very fragile and nobody really talks about this as they should. We've had Stephen Starr on the show talking about the electromagnetic pulse that gets set up from even a single nuclear explosion in space. And his book is just about to be published. Mm -hmm. We'll have him back on the show again talking about that. But Great. given the the power and the fragility of what we are dealing with, why are we rushing to make more of these things? What is the stated rationale? for increasing pit production, meaning the increasing the creation of new nuclear weapons? I think that there's a nested set of motives. I start with the ones, you know, that everybody is told, and then there's the ones which are whispered, and you get all the way down to our critique at the bottom. But the stated ones are that, well, sooner or later, we have to make more pits because they age, and the nuclear weapons age around them. So there are rubber parts and different things in there that wear out. And it's somewhat like replacing the sewer in your house. If you're going to have to take the whole place apart and uh, replace part of the sewer, then you as a homeowner, you want to do the rest. So you don't have to do all the tear down and everything the next time, just a few years later. So you will hear, well, the pits are aging and the weapons are aging. Well, that's one thing you hear. Another is we need them for this new warhead, which will go on ICBMs. And I think one of these warheads are going to be tested very soon near you, close to you there in California, because these warheads have to be sighted in like a rifle. When a new one is made, the accuracy has to be determined and because its physical properties are different. So there's a new warhead in the works. Livermore Lab is designing it. Los Alamos Lab is supposed to make the pits for it. And as it happens, there could be enough modern warheads to go on the proposed missile. This is a whole package. Missile, upgraded silos, new warhead, new reentry vehicle that holds the warheads. There already are warheads, but they say they are not as safe and reliable as the new one will be. But what they're not saying are two other things, which they will say in private. One is that if we don't make this warhead, what will we do? So we being the contractors, we being the NNSA, they're terribly worried that the United States will forget how to make these things. Uh, Los Alamos Lab, I think, just told a group of journalists that there are only 12 people in the world that know how to do this. Well, I think they meant 12 people in the United States and they were overstating it. But at the core, there is a little problem that if you don't keep making nuclear weapons, you begin to lose track of how to do it. 
And then, of course, the bigger thing, as one person in the White House said to me a few years ago, this entire thing is a way to keep Livermore Lab in business because Livermore Lab would be running out of new things to do and they will need a new warhead in order to maintain their budget. And so the California delegation looks the other way because Livermore Lab needs to make, you know, have these thousands of employees working on new weapons. And the expertise issue is overrated. I do want to say before we let that lie on the table too long, it's real but overrated. Los Alamos transferred the pit production mission to Hanford and Hanford transferred it to Rocky Flats with no apparent problems way back in the day. This is more of a training, an engineering, a management problem. And what we really are looking at when we look at this whiny sense, I can't, we can't do it unless we keep at it all the time, is a problem with the U.S. high tech production base generally, with the ecosystem of skilled workers in the country and how to attract them into a line of work which puts their lives at risk and is just ugly as hell all the way through. You can imagine spending your life standing there next to a glove box with your hands in lead-lined gloves, reaching way over, hurting your back, hurting every part of your body. Who create death machines? And this is, well, what do you do at work, Daddy? I create death machines. This is not something that they're finding easy to sell to people. And so that's a bigger part of the problem. I know people who have been to Department of Energy job fairs, if they were saying, we need skilled people to work on these fantastic, large new technologies for renewable energy, the lines at those tables are long. The lines at the tables that say making death machines, they're small. And so that's their problem. They have a skills transmission problem, but it's related to what the mission is. You know, this goes a long way to explaining an adage that I read just a short time ago, which is if there's an outrage that you oppose, don't look at who is being harmed. Look at who stands to profit. Absolutely. The warhead business is almost completely privatized. So there's less than 5% is federal management. And the rest is these really large contractors. They form a kind of cabal. They trade upper management. Uh, these contracts are worth enormous amounts of money. So in this administration, they're trying to normalize the 25-year contract. So Los Alamos is a $5 billion a year site now. 25 years times five is over a tenth of a trillion dollars for a contract, you don't have to put up any of your own money. There's no capital involved. You just walk in because the federal government owns everything. And you're indemnified from liability, from nuclear accidents and things like that. And you just compete by giving your corporate resume. And University of California, right near you, is one of the three main partners. They've got it so tripped out. They've got it so rigged. But looking at the bottom line of what's being created and what it is costing and how it robs every person in this country, 
of a better future that could be secured if that money went towards genuine renewables, if it went towards giving every building in the United States solar panels on the roof so that we wouldn't have to worry about that kind of energy, we could divest from it. But there's something about the power structure that is continuing to push this forward that is insane. Mm -hmm. And and it's not sustainable. I mean, even the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, recently released a review on the National Nuclear Security Administration, or NNSA as it's sometimes referred to, the program to build new warhead cores. And in this report, the GAO stated that it, quote, lacks a detailed schedule, budget, and scope of work. In other words, they're just throwing it out that they're going to do this, but they don't have any specifics. Why isn't a review that is this damning being used to delay or shut down this expansion of pit production? Good question. This goes back, I suppose I was remiss in not mentioning the master excuse that lies above them all, which is the need to control the world. It's the felt need to control the world in order to maintain the capital flows the way they are and so forth. So back in D.C., the notion that the United States would not have a factory for atomic bombs is what this boils down to. We would not be able to make a brand new atomic bomb, wouldn't be able to do what North Korea is doing, or Russia or China or England or France, is so abhorrent to the power structure that they will do anything and pay any price to have this capability in place, no matter how wasteful, and it is wasteful. In fact, one week after that GAO report, the DOA came out with a statement saying, guess what, our program is gonna be delayed four years at Los Alamos. Well, the GAO spent a year writing that report meeting with NNSA multiple times, as well as the laboratory and all the other contractors, everyone involved. It is really a slap in the face for as soon as that report hits the street, it to be revealed that, well, actually it's going to take another four years. That's going to be billions more than the GAO tallied. And they somehow managed to keep this secret from the government accountants until it was already on the street. So now we have this number, which is way too low, that the GAO put out in January. And it's not their fault. So there's a monopoly of information and a lack of pushback from the congressional committees who feel overwhelmed by the technical aspects. But really what's behind that is they're afraid to question national security as it is defined by a few people at the very top of this power pyramid. You might ask, what do these pits cost to make? And the answer is a lot. If you divide the dollars necessary to set up a pit production facility at Los Alamos National Laboratory with the number of pits that can be produced there over any period of time you want to specify, it will be in the neighborhood of $100 million per pit. 
So that's what one of these little spheres of plutonium cost to make. And that's not the cost of the bomb. That's just the cost of the pit. That's right. And the weird thing is that the Congress right now is saying that it might cost in the vicinity of $15 million for the whole warhead. But they have not included the price of the pit because it's considered so essential to have the factory that that's just cost free. That's not built to the uh, specific warhead, even though the Los Alamos factory is only for the particular warhead in question. So they're cooking the books. They're cooking the books. They're leaving the better part of the cost off books. And Congress, which is, you know, busy, they don't get it. And the people who may put a stop to this are, ironically, the non-nuclear portions of the military, because they're pissed off. They stay pissed off a little bit about what they see as egregious waste and lack of accountability in the NNSA laboratories. And that where, you know, they always need another hundred million or in this case, well, Los Alamos is burning approximately, now it's $1.8 billion a year trying to get ready for this. Meanwhile, there is an investment in a second pit factory, which is larger, more modern, and takes longer to complete in South Carolina. So pits are the only thing which for which there'll be two factories, both costing in the neighborhood of $15 billion apiece. You know, it's the only part of this whole system where redundancy is necessary. Well, that redundancy is politically necessary because in the first year of the Trump administration, the uh, Obama appointee who was running NSA had completed a study that started under Obama and said, you know what, we don't want to do this at more than one factory. And we sure as heck do not want to do it in that old facility at Los Alamos. And the New Mexico delegation, uh, Senator Heinrich and Senator Udall went absolutely crazy. They saw 15 or $20 billion taking wings and flying away. They created a stir in the Senate. The result was that the way to resolve this opposite of Solomon, they cut the baby, have two factors, satisfy all the senators. So we have this outrageous push to create a new pit production facility at Los Alamos. What kind of opposition has there been to this? How visible and how meaningful has that opposition been? Over time, it's been pretty great. So this is the fifth try at Los Alamos, a combination of the inherent problems of the site and local opposition have created barriers for them. When Los Alamos was built, it wasn't built to be a large facility. The initial idea was that there'd be 150 people there, including families and guards. So it was to be a tiny place. It grew rapidly during World War II, but nobody running Los Alamos wanted it to be a factory. So they wanted to get rid of that job, right? As soon as the war was over. And they did. Los Alamos has never been a factory. It is located on what the director of Los Alamos calls the world's longest cul-de-sac. It's a long way from anywhere. 
It was built there because it was isolated and it could be kept secret. Those are the same factors that make it difficult to have a factory there. The other factors which have come in, it was discovered slowly, and should have been obvious from the get-go, but no one was looking, that, you know, it's on the edge of a volcano on the western edge of the Rio Grande Rift Valley, and there's a big-ass earthquake fault on the western boundary of Los Alamos, which if you get in an airplane and you look along that fault, it's this crystal clear. And they have had earthquakes in the Richter 7 range. The accelerations are comparable to those experienced at the Fukushima nuclear power plant from the big earthquake there, because these earthquakes are very shallow. Turns out that under the plutonium facility, there's a thick layer of unconsolidated volcanic ash, basically dust. If you dig too deep to put a big building there, you go right through the cap layer and you're down in the, in the dust. That won't hold up a building. And the whole place is divided into these steep canyons. Their geotechnical study said in their, I guess, second to last attempt to build a pit factory there, you know, we can't guarantee that this building won't slide off the side of the mesa because <laughs> there is an insufficient soil buttress on the south side of the building. It's just too narrow. So they've had a lot of problems there. And underlying the whole thing is that this is an R&D lab. It's run by physicists, run by scientists for the most part. And their culture, as Bob Alvarez constantly emphasized to me, is not a culture of a high hazard nuclear facility. They don't have that corporate tradition or culture the same way that Savannah River has it, that Hanford even has it. They are dealing there with industrial processes with large amounts of nuclear material and where production procedures have to be standardized. It's very different at Los Alamos where you have an R&D culture and there's more experimentation that goes on. There's more sense of freedom and people feel like that's what they are joining when they come to the lab. So you've got a contrast at Los Alamos between the need to have a creative experimental culture and a very stolid, no experiments production culture where everything is rote. Now you combine this with the fact that 39% of Los Alamos employees are ready for retirement. Now, half of the people have worked there less than five years. So you have a very young cohort. They're not as well-trained. And then you add in all the construction workers, the equipment installers, and you put them all in a very small facility that is being completely turned over from the inside out, working 24-7. Construction workers next door to plutonium experimentalists, next door to production technicians. All of this at the same time in a 50-year-old facility that was not designed for modern safety standards. The person who's directing this said it's like maintaining and overhauling a jetliner in flight full of passengers. There is now something that is called the call for sanity, not nuclear production. What is it? What are its key points? And who has been endorsing it? 
Well, this is a kind of registry of resistance that we have put forward that is a way for people to say, no, we don't want this here at Los Alamos. We don't really want it anywhere. There are two sites that are eventually supposed to produce pits, but they're not to produce them at the same time right now. Los Alamos hasn't made a pit in over a decade. They hope they'll make one next year. One. And they hope they will gradually make more and more and reach the point where they are making 30 certified pits reliably by 2031 or 2032. Meanwhile, they are designing a facility in South Carolina that will be able to make all the 80 pits per year. But at the present time, that won't be able to start production until 2036. So there are two facilities. One is happening as fast as possible. The other one is still largely on the drawing board, except for the large plutonium MOX facility that exists. It's not, it's being repurposed, but it's never had plutonium in it. Repurposed at Savannah Riverside. Yes. In a way, they're repurposing at Los Alamos too, because it was an R&D facility, and now they're adding in this production component. So they're sort of repurposing both sites. The Los Alamos facility is dirty, small, and has ongoing work. And the other has never had plutonium in it, and it's much bigger. And Los Alamos has other plutonium missions. Even at its peak, the pit production is not supposed to be the majority of the work in this facility. The rise on Detra for doing this thing at Los Alamos is it's a stopgap. They don't want to fall behind in the pit gap. That's it. It's a pit gap. They're afraid of a pit gap. So Senator Angus King from Maine, who is uh, the chair of the Senate Strategic Forces Subcommittee of the Senate Armed Services Committee, just flat out asked the head of NNSA, is there a pit gap? The answer was no, there is not a pit gap. It's a hedge. I keep seeing George C. Scott at the end of Dr. Strangelove going, we cannot lose the mineshaft gap. Right. Jill Ruby, who is the administrator of the NNSA, told Senator King, no, there's not a pit gap, but we need pits now as a hedge because we're unsure. And can't help but remember the words of one Senate staff member, angry Senate staff member, who five, 10 years ago, he said, we're giving them billions of dollars every year for making sure that all of this works. And now they come and say, we're not sure. We need factories. So which is it? Did we waste the money that we gave you to be sure? Or you want now the factories and the money to be sure? This is insanity. Clearly, there are people who don't understand the consequences of their actions, who are in charge of these things. And it's gotten so complex that everybody's just dancing the dance that they have to dance to try and keep it going, not thinking about where this is all leading. So let's get back to the opposition. Looking at this call for sanity, not nuclear production, who's bought in, who signed on, who can sign on, and how can we start harnessing objection to this in a meaningful way so we can maybe stop the insanity? Yes. 
There are 105, as of this morning, 105 organizations have signed on to oppose hip production. This is about preventing another Rocky Flats. Rocky Flats was big and bad. This would be smaller in some ways, but there's no reason to think that it's not going to produce a ton of nuclear waste and dangers to workers, as well as nuclear weapons that we don't need. Pit production is not needed for any nuclear weapon the United States now deploys or is going to deploy until at least 2040. Of course, you can invent mission needs. Well, why do you need it? You need it because the Navy wants a weapon because the Air Force had a weapon. It's not actually needed for any deterrence purpose. When you say 105 organizations, are these all anti-nuclear or environmental or anti-war? Or do we have like the American Medical Association? Or do we have the Red Cross? Who is signing on to this? They are mostly anti-war, anti-nuclear. And in New Mexico, some businesses, almost 500 individuals have signed on. We're trying to let people know that this is the largest warhead program in the history of NNSA. It's the largest thing since the end of the Cold War. This is a $40 billion project. That's to get it started. That's not to operate. It's larger in in constant dollars than the entire Manhattan Project. And it is conceived by the nuclear hawks and the neoconservatives as absolutely essential to projecting American power and strength in the world. Even if you believe in nuclear deterrence, it's not necessary for that. There's a larger question here, and that is, what happened to the nuclear disarmament movement? What happened, and how can we spark people into opposing this move, not only because it's unnecessary, but because the end product is the destruction of everything? Part of it is that we in our generation have not succeeded in passing things on to a younger generation. The largest foundations that funded this work decided not to. They decided to end the financial existence of many peace groups, many nuclear disarmament groups. They wrote a report and naming names, this would be the Plowshares Fund, Rockefeller, Ford, and MacArthur. They wrote a report and said, we have too many groups working on nuclear issues and we need to eliminate most of them and capture the remaining talent in one or a few large groups, presumably headquartered in Washington, D.C. You couldn't have written a better scenario for the destruction of the nuclear disarmament movement. They followed that prescription and defunded most of our friends and us to the extent that we were dependent on those organizations. But a lot of people got very cold feet after 9-11, and now their feet are much colder after the Ukraine war. For those people who are listening to this show, this is overwhelming information and certainly not cheerful, but there is a pushback. What can we do? Can any of us sign on to the call for sanity, not nuclear production? Can we get groups involved? How can we start to stir things up and turn them around? Yes. You can go to our website, lasg.org, 
and sign the call for sanity, that would be great. We also, I should say, have internship and volunteer opportunities here. These would be paid internships. And we need talent, young talent especially. Mature talent comes with its own blessings that the young often don't have. And a mix is the best of all. There's tons of work to do here of a practical nature. We have defeated these things before. We would like to defeat them again. We are not particularly siloed on the idealistic side. We work in Washington, D.C. all the time. Other things that are quite on point right now, we can't talk about nuclear disarmament responsibly and productively without talking about how are we going to improve our relationships with Russia and China. They are the other side of this diplomatic equation, and we have got to work on that. In the case of Russia, the conflict in Ukraine drives an ever deeper wedge into our relationship and brings us to the very brink of nuclear war. So in a way, it's not about nuclear disarmament, now it's about staying alive. We have to look at the military industrial complex as a whole. We are now spending about $7,500 per household per year on the military and nuclear work. $7,500 a year per household is a make or break amount of money. And a lot of it's borrowed and it falls on our children if it doesn't blow up in our faces before then because of failed bond auction. We have got a crisis in the country and we need to realize that, that nuclear disarmament and becoming a peaceful nation is going to involve structural changes. It'll be difficult, but we're facing structural changes because of the folly that has brought us to this point. So we either could sit back and hope things will remain stable and we're going to be disappointed, or we can get involved in building resilient communities, in fighting the values, the political values, if you can call them that, that fund military corporations over human needs. Even if you're far away from a nuclear facility and nuclear weapons seem very abstract, the homeless on the street are not abstract. The unrepaired infrastructure, the schools, the inadequate teachers, we're just not taking care of this country. I want to thank you for your work, Greg Mello, as part of the Los Alamos study group and for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much, Libby. It's wonderful to be here. Greg Mello. He is one of the founders and executive director of the Los Alamos study group based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We will have a link up to the group on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 637. We will also provide a link to the Nuclear Hot Seat interview with Stephen Starr about the dangers of electromagnetic pulse set up by nuclear explosions, something Greg referenced in our conversation. That is on Nuclear Hot Seat number 626 from June 20th of 2023. Just look for the link and you'll find it. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. 
The International Uranium Film Festival will be returning to the United States in 2024 for a cross-country whistle-stop tour, and it welcomes your participation. If you have a group, a local issue, a need to get more word out about nuclear, you can contact the festival directly through their offices in Brazil and find out how you can make your local area a stop along the tour. It is still being formed, and almost anything is possible. Also, in the same press release, I am proud and honored to announce that I have been named Ambassador of the Uranium Film Festival to the United States. My goal will be to help promote the festival throughout North America and establish it in California, most particularly in Hollywood. There will be a link to the press release up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 637. If you have questions or suggestions, you can reach out to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. Linda Pence Gunter may be on sabbatical until November, which is why her hot story has been absent from this show, but she left behind a series of articles. One of them is a deep think piece. Quote, As money changes hands on Capitol Hill, is it lobbying or bribery? Really interesting relanguaging and well worth the read. We'll have a link to it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com. This episode is 637. And we welcome aboard our volunteer staff member, Jim Torson, who has self-selected the title Nuclear Hot Seat Senior Nitpicker. He specializes in vetting every link we post on our website and on the weekly email blasts. If you've ever gotten anything from this show labeled correction, the odds are good that he's the one behind it. Jim has been doing this unofficially for years, so we figured it was time to give him a title, and I'm glad for the one he chose. And here's an ask I really want you to take to heart. Nuclear Hot Seat gets out there not through any huge paid advertising campaign such as happens for anything pro-nuclear, but based on how we can get this out into the minds, eyes, and ears of those who oppose nuclear. That means if you have a website, a newsletter, or you send out a regular email blast that covers nuclear, environmental, or climate change issues, please include a permanent link to Nuclear Hot Seat. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, that's the best way for you to never miss another episode. And we make it easy. Yes, you can sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel, but let's cut to the chase. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a big honking yellow box that you will not be able to miss when you go to the site. Just fill in your first name and your email address, and every week we will send you that email which has not only the link to that week's show as soon as it posts, but a brief description of some of the materials inside. By adding yourself to our database, Google will help bring us up in the ratings. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help and we will appreciate anything. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi at Hardest Street Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as you cite the program, the website, 
the names of any guests whose comments you use, and, oh, by the way, me. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you what we do in the present defines the future. Russell Means, Oglala Lakota activist for the rights of Native Americans and a prominent member of the American Indian Movement. So there you have it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.